Oh, I've just deleted everything. Oh my god. Control Z. Whoa. You win. Oh dear. Um, there's there's the cold yeah. open for you. Um, oh my god. Oh my word. Welcome to the UFLX podcast. I'm Ewan Healy. And in this week's episode, we will be speaking to Dutch political scientist Cas Muda about extremism and populism amidst the coronavirus crisis. On top of that, UFLX deputy editor Matthew Nicholson will be with us to talk about what the virus is doing to opinion polls. And as if that wasn't enough stuff, we've got UFLX Poland specialist Michal Konatsky, who will be with us to talk about something very rare in these days, an election. And with me, of course, is Europolex's own socially distant Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi, hi, I'm good, Ewan. How are you? Yeah, very well. Keeping myself sane uh, without going out too much, only for my state-mandated daily exercise. Yeah. Um, combining that with the grocery shopping and, yeah, gosh. I mean, it's crazy that we actually have an election, though, to talk about. I know. I'm very excited. Though it, It's a little bit further away than we normally would talk about an election but i think we just got too excited at the pros- prospects of there being an election coming up well we have a lot of guests and a lot of different topics to cover this week so I, why don't we just go ahead with our news bulletin and in a non-covid related news can you believe it um north macedonia has um or will be joining nato so the north atlantic treaty organization or nato has grown since our last podcast to now 30 members as the Republic of North Macedonia joined the Defensive Alliance, which was founded in 1949. Its membership um, has been stalled for several years due to a dispute with neighboring Greece over its name. Following a controversial international treaty agreement, the country previously known as the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia renamed itself to the Republic of North Macedonia. This was largely understood to be a prerequisite for the small country's accession to both NATO and the EU as Greece removed its veto to both memberships after this name change. So depending on how you see it, but yeah, some good non-virus related news there. A nice moment of non-virus news. Now to shatter that, we head to Hungary, where Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who leads the EPP-affiliated Fidesz party, last week managed to get through an emergency law through parliament that gives the government the right to rule by decree until further notice in a bid to help halt the spread of COVID-19. This has caused a wave of criticism both within Hungary and from the European Union with Commission President Ursula von der Leyen saying that it is of utmost importance that emergency measures are not at the expense of our fundamental principles and values as set out in the treaties in an indirect jab at the Hungarian government. Fidesz is a member of the centre-right European People's Party, something begrudging a lot of its other members this week, with 13 parties from across the European Union urging for the party to be expelled. A uh, decision on its continued membership is likely to be taken once COVID-19-related travel restrictions are lifted and European politics returns to normal. That feels far away, Ewan, but yeah, I guess we'll... We'll keep our listeners updated. Um, And now to the UK, as I'm sure you've all been following, um, there's been a busy week in the ex-EU member state. Prime Minister and Head of Government Boris Johnson uh, became what we think is the first national leader to be diagnosed with coronavirus. Um, The former mayor of London, who has been prime minister since July of last year, was diagnosed 
with the virus on March 27th after presenting symptoms and was admitted to the hospital on the 5th of April after the symptoms had not subsided. Government spokesperson said at the time that he was in good spirits and continued to be doing his job from isolation. Uh, but then just a day after that, it was revealed that he was uh, being moved to an intensive care unit and that his de facto deputy, Foreign Minister Dominic Robb, is now chairing all meetings on his behalf. We also saw the monarch and head of state of the UK, um, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, make a rare televised address to the nation, which is only the fourth uh, one in her 68-year reign. Um, and um, as of today, um, Johnson is still in intensive care, but is said to be improving. Staying in the UK, but moving away from coronavirus, we bring you news of the Labour Party. Now, following their defeat in December's national parliament election, the centre-left party elected a new leader this week in Keir Starmer. Starmer had been, as shadow Brexit secretary, the party's spokesperson on Brexit since 2016. He won an absolute majority of party membership support in the leadership election, which concluded on the 4th of April. 56% of the Social Democratic and Socialist Party's members elected him to replace veteran socialist Jeremy Corbyn, who had led the party through two national parliament elections since 2015. Prior to entering politics, Starmer was the UK's most senior public prosecutor between 2008 and 2013, with 20 years' experience as a defence lawyer specialising in human rights. In assembling his top team, he made headlines by appointing the first ever woman to be opposition finance minister, known domestically as the shadow chancellor. And along with this, he appointed former party leader Ed Miliband as his business spokesperson. Um, so now we're going to talk about the presidential election Poland. And once again, it's a COVID-19 story. So the government Poland is resisting pressure to postpone uh, the presidential election scheduled for May 10th. Um, the ruling right-wing Law and Justice Party has instead passed measures through the lower house of the national parliament that will allow the election to be held by post. The opposition has criticized the government for this, accusing it of seeking to boost the chances of incumbent president Andrzej Duda, who is supported by law and justice and currently enjoys a major lead in the polls. While the government insists it is doing it to defend the democratic process, the election will likely remain controversial if it does indeed go ahead, with the main opposition candidate, Malgorzata Kidawa-Blonska of the center-right civic coalition, previously calling for an overall boycott of the event. As our news has shown, the coronavirus pandemic has had an impact on our society and economy, um, and it's pretty much unavoidable everywhere you look. But we wanted to ask, as that is our nature, what's it doing to the polls? And so to do this, we've got Deputy Editor of EuropeLex, Matthew Nicholson, with us to unpack all of this for this week. And he's been writing for the website, so he's got lots of expertise to be able to help inform us all. Matthew, how are you doing? I am all right. Uh, I'm indoors. Uh, where I have been for about the last three weeks now. But uh, yeah, I'm not too bad. Good. Glad to hear you're staying safe. So, Matthew, what is the trend that you've been writing about for the website this week? Give us a rundown. So the general trend, um, and I should caveat this uh, by saying that it's very early to be drawing these conclusions. So, you know, we can't be absolutely sure about what's happening. Uh, and also it's not happening universally. But the general trend is that parties that are in government and leaders of countries, whether it be prime ministers or presidents, head of governments, head of states, uh, have been seeing their approval ratings or their opinion polling levels shoot up uh, in about the last month, since around mid-March when the coronavirus really first began to properly hit Europe. So help us understand the scale of this trend. How big are the jumps in support that we're seeing? Um, so just to pick out a couple of countries, um, here in the UK, um, where I am, 
the Conservatives, who were already enjoying quite a bit of a, a honeymoon period after their election victory last December, a couple of polls now have had them up on an unprecedented 54%, which would be their best result since, if repeated an election, since 1931. Um, and then to go across the channel, looking at France, uh, President Emmanuel Macron has seen some double-digit increases, uh, and one Harris poll in March had him up to 51% approval. Uh, and that's around the upper range of what's been getting, but that's still, uh, he's been getting consistently some of his best polling numbers since um, around 2018. And then, you know, this is happening in several different countries you look at. In Germany, the CDU, CSU union are uh, around a three-year high. In Ireland, uh, Fianna Gael, the governing party of um, Leo Varadkar, they've seen their fortunes massively reverse after do doing pretty badly in uh, the February election. Uh, and there was a poll that had them back up in the lead. And is that just isolated to Western Europe? I mean, I just noticed that the examples that you've given us there are all Western. Is that seen replicated elsewhere across the centre and east of the continent? It is, yeah. Um, th there's been a bit more polling that I've seen anyway in Western Europe, but um, in Poland, which of course we'll be talking about in a little bit more detail, um, President Duda has seen his polling figures rise to, to quite hefty numbers. Um, and he's even looked like he might be within reach of a first round majority, which um, has only happened once in Poland's uh, modern democratic history. Uh, and then to look at another example, in Estonia, the governing centre party um, are also now at their highest level since last year's election, after which they, they went through a bit of a dip, but um, you know, like, like in these other trends, they've, they've come back up in the polling. And then of course, there's many um, international examples as well we can look at beyond Europe. Um, probably the one most people are paying attention to is US President Donald Trump, who's um, approval ratings, while they're still not, you know, great, they're at the highest level since he took office. Well, that's, that's quite an impressive change in the fact that it's going on across Europe. I mean, my mind immediately goes to countries where perhaps the, the leadership, the ruling isn't so clear. I mean, you've mentioned Ireland, where they're technically a caretaker government. What about in countries where there's a, a broad coalition running the country or a technocratic government? You know, who's gaining in those situations? Yeah, I mean, it's easier in countries like the UK or the United States, I suppose, where, you know, there's a clear party or a clear figure that's in power. I'd be, I'd, again, I'd, I'd give caveats about drawing any clear trends from this, um, and everything I say might end up being disproved by the next poll that comes out. But the kind of base conclusion I draw from what I'm seeing at the moment is that it seems as though the leading coalition partner in coalitions is the one that's seeing most of the benefit, which I suppose makes sense because they'll, they'll be the ones that are, you know, most associated with the national response that's associated with the leadership. Um, so to look at a couple of examples, in Germany, uh, the CDU, CSU union have um, seen the bulk of the rise, whereas the Social Democrats or their coalition partner are only up a little bit marginally. Uh, and the same thing in Austria, where the governing People's Party are above 40% now, um, where the coalition partner party, the Greens, who are also doing quite well, but they haven't seen the same level of a rise. Another point of question here, I guess, is that in a lot of countries, um, definitely in, in Germany and in the UK and in others, uh, regional governors or regional leaders will be doing the bulk of the response to coronavirus in their own region. Is this something where we're seeing the national government win, take the credit, benefit in the polls from something that's actually being done by other parties on a lower level? That is a really good question, which I haven't looked much into yet, um, but gave me a very good idea for another article. Um, the, the only example I've really been paying that much attention to at the moment is, um, you know, my, my home country of Scotland, where there was a recent poll that had uh, the Scottish National Party, who's in power in um, the Scottish Parliament. They were uh, 
doing pretty well and they'd seen an increase um but then they were also enjoying a bit of their own honeymoon after last December's election. So I think it's quite hard at this point to say whether that's specifically a coronavirus boost. Um, but that's certainly a very interesting question. I would suspect the answer to that will come down to issues like which leader or which party, whether it's the regional one or the federal one or the state one, is being seen to be leading the response more, which one is getting the more media attention. Um, so yeah, I think that you could probably get some quite interesting insights by looking into that a bit more. I suppose that question will be answered with the regional elections that we've got coming up later in the year after the crisis is over and in the new year. So let's just sort of finish up by looking towards this as sort of asking the why question from a sort of sociological point of view. Why are people supporting the government more than they would do in another time? Is it a, is it a wartime spirit thing? Is it a sort of defence mechanism to the chaos? They're trying to contribute stability um, to the government in a sort of... Uh, semi-conscious way but what do you think yeah i think that's certainly um a part of it um and you know we're seeing the phrase rally around the flag being repeated very often as, as this kind of um you know, kind of phenomenon that happens whenever there's a crisis and you know usually usually like you say wartime spirit is, is the kind of occasion when that's been more normally applied uh and then people seem to back their governments during a crisis uh i, I do think though there's also more specific tangible processes at work a bit like i was alluding to just now that during these times of crisis governments and leaders are getting a kind of unparalleled media dominance and news coverage right now and they have unprecedented opportunities to emphasize a message of strength and competence they wouldn't in more normal times uh, and there's also a very strong incentive at the moment for opposition parties to suspend their normal criticisms of the government so that they're not seen to be you know trying to politicize a crisis um or and you know more um, you know, to be to be more fair, trying to genuinely work to you know improve the crisis. Um, so that again reduces criticism of the government and helps funnel this national attention towards the governing party and the governing leader. So certainly, I think I think there's an element of people wanting to back their government and wanting it to succeed that you wouldn't normally have. But there's these more kind of you know procedural matters or sort of you know processes happening in in the media sphere that's. I think influencing it as well. Really interesting. And I suppose only time will tell as to what kind of long-term impact this has, depending on A, how long this crisis rolls on for, and B, whether the support for incumbent parties outlasts into elections. Matthew, mm, thank yes. you so much for coming on. It's been really great to chat to you. Yeah, thank you very See much. You soon, I'm sure. Stay safe. Now, taking all of that with our minds fresh with this understanding, I've got here sitting with me uh, Europe elects team member for Poland, uh, who is going to help us look ahead to the Polish presidential election, the next election uh, in Europe that's coming up amidst this crisis time. Michal, how are you doing? Uh, I'm really cool. And how are you? Yeah, well, thank you. So are you enough social distance? I am safely social distanced at home, enjoying a little bit of uh, getting used to the new rhythms of what is quite a terrifying time. So, okay. Michal, let's get into the, the nitty-gritty of this. What's your assessment of the upcoming presidential election? Will the incumbent, uh, as we've talked about just previously, ride to success on the back of some national flag rallying? Uh, well, actually, it's really hard to say. For now, we are seeing many polls and approval ratings showing incumbent President Duda and the governing piece earning a lot of support. But... Well, should we consider these polls reliable? Mm, I wouldn't say so, because they say 
peace and Duda earning a lot of support, but on the other hand, they show the turnout really low. Uh, but answering to your question, uh, yeah, the latest polls su suggest that he would probably win in the first round. So that's really interesting to me because I, I don't really understand the logic behind this, given that the president um, in Poland, uh, President Duda, and the role as a whole is, you know, it's a largely constitutional role and not one that does the practical medical response. Why is Duda benefiting from PIS's uh, success? Uh, okay, so the reason for that is Duda is the only candidate with a chance for a campaign. He meets a lot of people every day, he is driving from town to town, from hospital to hospital, and he plays the main role in convincing people that peace is doing everything fine and everything well. Uh, another reason is Polish national TV. Not every citizen has access to private media broadcasters and the Polish national TV is, well, kinda biased. It is a running joke in Poland that TVP, because that's the name of it, blames opposition for everything and not gonna lie, it's a partially true. The headings during late news shows are so much focused on opposition parties such as KIO, Lewica or PSL that viewers may not even support peace. They just hate opposition, which is uh, not really good at defending itself so look at let's look at this opposition um people then who who are the other players in this election is there anyone we should be watching perhaps maybe not in this election but for the future or that might surprise us on election day even then uh yeah for now there are two major opposition candidates and three minor Till last week, all polls were showing PO candidate Małgorzata Kidawa-Błońska as the main opponent of incumbent President Duda. But everything changed due to the coronavirus outbreak. People spend more time at home, they watch more TV, they listen to radio, and they are more, more up-to-date with the, all the information about candidates and generally about the election. Wodysław Kosiniak-Kamysz, center-right PSL candidate, is doing pretty well now. He's very active on TV, he does a lot of interviews, so people see him instead of Małgorzata Kidawa-Błońska as the main opponent against Duda. Another advantage of Kosiniak-Kamysz is that he's really well-educated and he behaves with a charisma needed to win with other candidates. Kidawa screwed up a little, which is the worst you can do if the biggest media broadcaster is against you. So you mentioned that the prospects of certain candidates have changed in the, in the wake of coronavirus. Um, you know, the fact that the election is still going ahead is something that's actually quite surprising as an international observer. Can you just help us understand why it's still going ahead in uh, Poland and why it hasn't been cancelled as with other countries? Okay, so frankly, there are two answers for that. One is the one given by our government, which is saying that there is just no need to postpone the election. Uh, even though Peace postponed high school certificate exams he, for the earliest date in June, he tightened up the safety provisions. In their opinion, it's safe to keep the, the, the election date on the 10th of May. Uh, second answer, uh, is that peace really wants to win, which is obviously true because, as I suppose, it's the main goal of every candidate. The biggest dilemma here is, in my opinion, is what is more important, electoral victory and another five years of presidency for Duda or life and health of citizens, which can be in danger, even if the parliament will sign the bill allowing election to be held by postal voting. So... Is that the, the aim there for the alternative measures to try and keep people safe at the same time as having election? Is that focused around postal voting? Uh, 
yes and no. Today, Prime Minister Morawiecki and Health Minister Szumowski, which is earning more and more support from Polish citizens, uh, announced another measures. Uh, Poland introduced compulsory face covering and is going to keep school closed till the 26th of April. The suspension of international air and rail connection will remain until this date as well, but the border restrictions limiting entry to the country will remain until 3rd of May. But the most important uh, thing and the most important measure, in my opinion, is, the, is that the church attendance is limited to five people, which is really important because Poland as a deeply Catholic country prepares for the Easter celebrations right now. A really uh, interesting time, both electorally, socially um, across Europe. But that's a really interesting angle that you've given us there for uh, popular political aspects in Poland. Thanks so much, Michal, for coming on. Thank you. Great to chat to you. Europe Elects is run by volunteers. Everything we do, including this podcast, is with the help of our supporters, and we want to do more. We will soon be sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more through our Patreon. And with your support, we'll be doing a lot more on all our platforms. Uh, so please don't miss out and support us on Patreon. So I'm very excited to share with you all that um, our guest this week is Kas Mude, who's a professor at the University of Georgia, if I'm, if I'm correct, and also a Guardian columnist and known overall for being the go-to expert on populist parties and far-right extremism. Welcome to the podcast, Kas. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Um, so our episode today is focused on the rally around the flag effect that we're observing across Europe in light of the current COVID-19 crisis that's sort of all-consuming for us all right now. And the approval ratings for a lot of leaders, as well as, in some cases, the reported trust in politics overall, is seeing um, a spike rather rapidly. And at the face of it, um, I guess you would assume this will be negative for far-right parties uh, because there is this increased space for experts to talk. The crisis is inherently structural and health focused. Um, but I know you recently wrote an article in The Guardian where you critiqued people for sort of beating the big drum on this and making generalizations. So the reason we'd like to speak with you today is to put that into context and hear your thoughts on how we can tie what's going on right now with far-right politics or whether we shouldn't. Uh, I don't know if you could, first of all, Summarize your article for those who aren't Guardian readers, uh, and then we can take it from there. Yeah, so my article is pretty much a response to um, to mostly the take that uh, COVID-19 is going to kill populism, which is very popular here in the US, um, because here populism, although one should really say the far right, is in power. and um, under these this kind of stress shows its incompetence mm-hmm. and this trump response is kind of then um compared to also bolsonaro in brazil also denying the severity of the crisis etc cetera, etc cetera. within europe and um, there is kind of a different type of uh, response where some think that this is going to really bring the far right a lot of support because they assume that the far right is in opposition. Um, Now, the problem is with many of these accounts is that I think people still don't understand 
that populism or the far right, right, which are not fully the same, although today almost all of the populist forces are on the far right, is no longer um, that homogenous. It's no longer that outsider that is challenging the mainstream. The far right today is in power in various countries, is in coalition in others, and is in is in opposition in yet again others. And so the rally, rally around the flag is problematic for the far right in opposition, yeah. but helps the far right in power as it as it does in Hungary or in Poland yeah. um, or populist in power as it at the moment does uh, in Italy and for a while did with Trump. Um, my, my main problem is that we're just really in the middle of this. And so we, we don't know what the narrative is going to be. We do know that all these rally around the flag effects are short term. Right? Yeah. And so they will wear off pretty soon. And then there will be a debate about what should have been done. And at this point in time, it is actually fairly unclear what the best response is. Definitely. Um, so what would you say? Is there anything um, in general you would say for for mainstream parties or for those forces that, that want to avoid having far-right forces capitalize on any sort of crisis really um, to watch out for in the response to this? Or do you think that's also very um, country-specific? Well, transparency is always incredibly important. Um, so you want to be open about what you do and why you do it. Um, because a populist in particular profit from a lack of transparency, which allows for conspiracy theories to, to uh, float. Um, I think what, what mainstream parties overall, what their weakness is or what their Achilles heel is to a certain extent, uh, particularly vis-a-vis um, populists like Trump or Bolsonaro, is that like they they follow science and they want to warn for something really severe yeah. to a population that by and large doesn't really want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And so you, you haven't you have an incentive to exaggerate uh, the threat, yeah, yeah. Right? and and make sure that everyone understands that you could die too, right? It's not just your grandfather or mother. Yeah. Um, and so what you see is, first, most governments start with relatively modest uh, proposals, and then they strengthen it and tighten it, and the discourse gets more and more apocalyptic in a sense, yeah. and. This, while this is useful because it actually makes people comply, at the same time, it makes it very easy for, for populists who kind of underwrite this by saying, well, this was all scaremongering. And um, th- the problem is populists don't necessarily have to be right. They just need the mainstream not to be right. And I think you see that in, in the US already where Trump, by and large, just always creates his own world and is now kind of positioning him as, well, I took this serious, but at the same time, I also had a serious concern for the economy. And if about 100 to 200,000 Americans will die, 
he will sell this as saying, look, I took the measures, but I didn't go crazy as the scaremongers did. And so I saved the economy. And and this is this is really the trick when you deal with populists in particular, like who who just by and large don't are not very factual. It doesn't mean they deny facts, but the facts and knowledge and expertise are not so central to their claim um, of, of of politics. So on the back of that, I wanted to talk to you also about the media's role in all of this. So obviously this is just at the top of the agenda everywhere. Every bit of what's going on is being discussed and the topic we're talking about now as well. And I know previously as well in your book and things that there is definitely a relationship between how the media treat far-right parties and position them and then how they can use that in their growth and in their campaigning. Is that correct? Do you see any of that going on? Yeah, I think at the moment you don't see it that that much. I must say I find that at least the mainstream media is playing a relatively uh, sober mm-hmm. and uh, responsible role. Um, they cover... COVID-19 very intensely, they make it publicly available, which is also important because one of the reasons why a lot of people get their information from less reliable sources is because they don't have access to stories from the New York Times or the Washington Post because they tend to be gated. Um, at, At this point in time, we're in the middle of it, right? And so there's very little... Um, blaming at the moment. Of course, there's blaming of Trump and of Bolsonaro, and they do create a bit of a caricature of what they call the populist response. Um, The question is, what is going to happen when this, in a sense, the curve is flattened, and we're going to assess this? Um, And if, if that is done also responsibly, um, by accepting that most people just simply didn't know, um, then uh, what was going to happen, and that it's better to err on on uh, the side of caution. Like, then I don't necessarily think that the that the far right is going to win that much. Um, I think there people like Bolsonaro in particular and Trump might have a bigger problem because they had what is broadly seen as very irresponsible. Um, and incoherent responses. But in other cases, this is not so clear. And and many of the mainstream governments have pretty much communicated pretty well. And also you see that now very few far-right parties are able to really break into the discourse. And that's not just because, because the mainstream media crowds them out. That's just because people are not looking to them for information. Yeah, I guess, and it's hard for them to claim to be holding some sort of view or or view of the truth that the that the elites don't whereas i whereas when topics like immigration and cultural issues um are at the top of the agenda which they have been for uh well i would say for a large part of the the past decade um and in the uk obviously there's brexit which ties into that as well yeah, absolutely. And I think I think this is probably what the far right is going to get out of this and what they're going to try is to make this an issue about national borders and immigration and, and arguing that 
this just shows how important border control is. Yet on the other side, people are going to argue about how this actually shows that national borders don't mean much and international cooperation is crucial. Um, and so I don't personally, I don't think that too many minds will shift over this. Like, I mean, people who are nativist will see this as a foreign threat, which just uh, proves that like you have to pretty much not let people in. And, and people who don't, who don't necessarily have that view will see this as proof that while border control is like, sh you shouldn't have open borders at the same time, you should be a, you're part of a connected world and you, you need to work together. Um, so in terms of, so this crisis will at some point um, blow over or at least there will be other issues that will uh, start crowding it out. In the media and in public discourse overall, although it feels very far away um, right now. Um, so thinking more generally about the far right, which is obviously a a party family and uh, cultural movement in some respect that you've been following for quite some time. How would you describe, I guess, the fractured state of these parties after, I guess, a decade of success? Do you think they will mostly continue on similar trajectories? Is there sort of a stagnation in them? And is there any specific party or country you're looking at more specifically as a potent um, breeding ground, I guess, for right-wing populism that we're not paying attention to? Well, I think one of the important things is that within within much of Europe, the far right is is just an established political movement or, or, and or party, like think Austria, France, Sweden, it goes back decades, and they're not going to disappear. They're going to like win at times and lose at times, but they're around, and they're going to be the third or fourth biggest party in their country. Um, at the moment, the far right is exceptionally strong because they had some kind of shock wins in first-past-the-post systems. Right? And so U.S. is a good example. Like Trump could potentially lose, um, at which point in time people will act as if the far right is much less important or popular, whereas actually he might get exactly the same percentage as he did in 2016. But in a first-past-the-post system, you win everything or you lose everything, whereas in a proportional system, this isn't the case. Um, I think I think in terms of like uh, focus, we, we focus a bit too much on on Hungary and Poland rather than in on many of the other countries where the far right is present but not as strong. We focus far too little on India, yeah, yeah. which has the largest far right party and, and the, the most developed far right subculture in the world. Um, but I think that the real challenge and, and opportunity to a certain extent of this particular crisis is that it, it it provides an opportunity to shift the discourse back to socioeconomic issues. Yeah. I, I, for not just the left, but even many on the right, and even the Financial Times and the Economist, right, are, are pointing out that what this um, pandemic shows is how badly we have pretty much uh, neglected uh, the role of the state as well as healthcare and those kind of things. And so that is kind of my hope, 
like leaving aside that I'm a social democrat and I hope that these type of policies come back, right? The, the added advantage of that is that when we talk more about socioeconomic issues, um, like the role of the state, like investments in infrastructure and healthcare, the far right is less relevant. Um, and so you don't need to have all kind of campaigns about how important immigrants or, or people of, of minorities have been in the NHS or other things. I mean, if you just focus on the importance of issues like healthcare, education, infrastructure, etc., right, the far right is just not going to be as important and will lose some of its support. It won't disappear but it won't be as important. And also importantly, it won't be copied because mainstream parties over the last decade or so have copied the far right on their issues because their issues were dominant. Yeah. They're not going to copy the far right on healthcare because they don't, the far right has very little to say about healthcare. Knowing what you know sort of about populism and the way in which a lot of these parties work, do you see them reacting to this by, by sort of trying to develop policies on this these issues and seeing it as a way to become more mainstream on those as well? Or do you think they'll behave more by reverting back to their sort of evergreen issues like immigration and sort of become less relevant that way? Um, or will that just depend on the strategic nature of each individual party? Yeah, in part, but but the more established far right parties actually do have policies on a on a broad range of issues. Yeah. The point is that voters are not interested so much in those policies. Like they don't vote for far right parties for their policies on the environment, or, or for their policies on healthcare or on infrastructure or education. Like these parties are voted for first and foremost on issues of immigration and integration. Yeah. And so when when these issues are going to be secondary, then people are focusing on healthcare issues. And while the far right will have healthcare issues, those won't be the ones that people think, okay, this party is really the party for healthcare issues. Um, so they will develop them, but in the end, their message is really about anti-establishment it's about authoritarianism and it's about anti-immigration. Um, and if they can't link the key issues to, to these sentiments, right, they will not dominate the debate in the same way as they have been doing for the last decade or more. Brilliant. Um, thank you, Cass, uh, for speaking to us today uh, and Absolutely. giving us context. And I guess we'll just have to, uh, well, stay inside, stay safe, take care of each other, and then we'll We'll have to to see how this party family <laughs> develops and reacts um, as time goes. Yeah, absolutely. For the moment, it's stay healthy, safe, and sane. Thank you. Up next is everyone's favourite segment, Who's Who in the European Commission. Who? We've got two more very interesting commissioners to share with you and we hope it gives you a little bit more of an insight into how the eu works so first up the person that i drew out of the magic hat of european commissioners today is joseph borel uh, joseph borel is the only european commissioner who isn't a commissioner what do i mean by that so instead borel is 
the EU high representative, functioning essentially as the European Union's combined foreign affairs and defence minister. In this role, alongside participating in meetings of the European Council, that's the Committee of Heads of Government and State of the European Union, he coordinates security policy for the Union and acts as a diplomat for the EU to foreign states. The role was specifically designed under the Lisbon Treaty, and Borrell is also a vice president of the von der Leyen Commission. About Joseph Borrell himself, but prior to becoming the high representative, Borrell was a politician in his home country of Spain. As a member of the center-left Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, that's PSOE, he has served at separate times as a member of the Congress of Deputies representing Barcelona, that was between 1986 and 2004, and as a member of the European Parliament between 2004 and 2009. For two of those years, he was also the President of the European Parliament. For five years, between 1991 and 1996, he served as Spain's Minister for Public Works and the Environment, uh, and then again returning to Spain's Council of Ministers in 2018 as a Minister for Foreign Affairs and the European Union. Who have you got, Gabriel? So this week, I've got Dubravka Suica. So she is a Croatian politician serving as the European Commissioner for Democracy and Demography. Uh, so she's a member of the Croatian Democratic Union, uh, HDC, uh, and uh, that party is part of the center-right European People's Party in the EU Parliament. Her role as Commissioner focuses on promoting democracy across the European Union by involving citizens in decision-making processes and increasing transparency in legislation, as well as tackling inequality, prejudice, and poverty, all that good stuff. Um, she's also Vice President of the Commission, um, her too. Uh, and before taking on this role, uh, Suica was a two-term mayor of Dubrovnik, being one of the first women to hold the mayoralty of a major Croatian city in history when she was elected in 2001. She also served as a member of the Croatian parliament from the same time uh, up until around 2013 uh, before taking up a seat in the EU parliament between 2013 and 2019 when uh, she got this new amazing gig. And I think that's it for, for this week, Ewan. I think that is it for this week. Hope you stay safe out there, uh, listeners. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Hope it's given you 30 or 40 minutes of distraction from your social distancing. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to the Europe Alex podcast. If you like what we do, which we hope you do, subscribe and review this podcast and of course tell people about us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, you should make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find us at europeelex.eu and at europeelex across all social media platforms, except Instagram, that is, where it's at europe underscore elex. Um, see you next time. Stay home, stay safe, wash your hands, and see you soon. You've been listening to the Europe Alex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedenbrun. The managing editor was Polychronos Karampoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado. Wash those hands.